you guys can go ahead and have a seat. As you do, you can go and open up your Bibles, your copy of God's Word, to the book of Malachi. It's the last book in your Old Testament. Short little book. Just go to Matthew and flip back the left a couple pages and you'll be there. Uh, we've been in Malachi for a, a few weeks, and we're really doing Malachi as kind of a prelude to jumping into the book of Matthew and looking at the life of ministry, life of ministry of Jesus Christ in Matthew, which will start in December. But Malachi is a really important book, kind of tucked away there at the Old Testament. It's God's last word before this gap in G- when Jesus comes, and in a lot of ways, it, it recaptures so many of the problems. Uh, that went on in the Old Testament. So many of the things that needed to be fixed in Jesus while pointing us forward to him. But this morning, before we get into Malachi, I want to take you to a verse in Matthew or a little passage in Matthew because I think it kind of lays a foundation for us to understand what is going on in Malachi. In Matthew chapter 22, a bunch of the religious leaders in Israel come to Jesus and as they were wont to do, they wanted to test him catch him, catch him to say something wrong, something they could lean on to undermine his work and his ministry. So they ask him in Matthew 22, verse 36, they say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus here basically summing up what God requires of us. There's two primary things that God's word communicates to us, the law and the gospel. The law tells us what God demands, what he requires of his creation, and the gospel tells us what he's done for us, right? And this is Jesus, essentially his summary of the law. What is required of us is to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor. But it's interesting, Jesus was only asked for the greatest commandment, right? He was asked for one, and what did he do? He gave these two. And he said the second one, to love your neighbor, is like the first. So he intentionally really ties these two things together. And that's not an accident. Jesus was being very intentional with what he did there. He's driving home the fact that these two things are linked, that they really cannot be parsed out from one another when we rightly understand them. You cannot love God without loving his image bearers, those he made in his image, who he loves. You cannot love God and not love them. And by the same token, how you relate to God, how you understand God, how you understand his relationship to you is going to show forth in how you relate to your neighbors. Right? You cannot love God apart from loving your neighbors, and how you understand the love of God, how you relate to him, is going to play out in how you relate to the people around you. These things are intimately tied together. And that is a crucial piece of what we're going to see here in Malachi 2, starting in verse 10. So far in Malachi, what we've seen is that God's people of Israel, Judah, who's come back to the promised land after their exile, they do not believe God is who he says he is, and they do not trust his love for them. Flat out, they disbelieve that. After all they've gone through, and given the difficult circumstances that they find themselves in, They have a distorted view of who God is and a distorted view of his relationship to them. And we've seen that through the first three or four sermons we've walked through, how this has affected the way that they think about God and how it's affected their worship, how it's affected the way the priests even teach the word of God to them. But our passage today marks a shift because it's not going to talk about how their relationship directly to God has gotten corrupted, but how their relationship with one another 
has become corrupted because of it. And specifically, it's going to hone in on one very particular spot, the place where this relationship between this love of neighbor should be seen most clearly and most beautifully, the relationship of marriage. Let's go ahead and read this passage, and then we will dive in and unpack it. So Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16 this morning. That's where we're going to be. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we ask for your help this morning. We thank you for your word. Uh, we need it, and, but we know we need your help to understand it rightly. I need your help to speak it rightly. Uh, and so we come before you humbly asking that you would do that, that you would minister to us and care for us through it this morning uh, as you see fit. Uh, Lord, again, where conviction is needed, I pray that you would bring it. Where comfort is needed, I pray that you would bring it. And ultimately, I pray that we would be um, just reminded anew and grounded and rooted again in your deep and great love for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I want to start just by kind of talking through this passage as a whole. What's, what's going on here, right? We can kind of see it from the surface level, but I want to go into a little bit more detail just so you guys understand the full situation of what's playing out. Because there's some cultural and some time and, and some distance that we have between what's really going on here and, and maybe the way we would understand these things in our culture. So Malachi, God's prophet, comes to the people and he starts, as he often does in this book, with some things that he knows they'll agree with, right? So, do we not all have one God as Father and one God as Creator? So he starts with very, some very broad commonalities, right? He's talking about, hey, all of us. He starts really broad with creation. One God as Creator, right? This, so we have this whole category of human beings are created in the image of God, right? So there's a certain bond that we share just as His creatures, just as His image bearers. And then when he says to have God as Father, he narrows it down a little bit more. Right? God describes himself as Father, particularly towards his covenant people. Not just towards creation in general, but specifically towards his people. So where he's narrowing it down to an even tighter relationship, right? So you have this commonality as image bearers of God. That's significant. But now, as God's people, you have an even greater commonality, right? That you are God's chosen people. He has set his love and affection on you and made you his own. So this is an even narrower group, a tighter group with deeper bonds. And then he says, despite this, right, 
he's, he's making a case like you guys should be close. This should lead to a certain kind of relationship if you share these things. But instead, really the, the, the key accusation of this passage, the thing that God is bringing to the people is that they have been faithless. They have been faithless. I think the better translation for this word is actually treacherous. Because the idea behind it is, is that you receive evil where you were supposed to and expected to receive good. It's the idea of being, being stabbed in the back. This is kind of, it's kind of like, I mean, the archetype of this would be Judas and what he did to Jesus, right? He walks with Jesus all these years. They share meals and they share their whole life together. And then he's betrayed with a kiss. That is a perfect image of what this word is trying to capture and what God is bringing forward to Israel and saying, what you have done, you have been, you've been treacherous. Where to the people that you were supposed to do good, who, who expected rightfully to receive good from you, you have instead done evil to them. You've harmed them. All right, the way that we that God's people should relate to one another should be marked by fidelity, and instead it's being characterized by this malicious stabbing in the back and exploitation. And so in this verse, we see that, I think this is happening in Israel and Judah in a general broad way. Like this is what's marking kind of their life as a community. But what Malachi is gonna do is he's gonna hone in on a particular place where it is most egregious and most appalling to drive home this point. Because of all the places that this shouldn't happen, it shouldn't happen in marriage, right? Because here we neck down to an even another layer of closeness, right? Image bearers, that warrants treating people well. Being God's people, that's another layer of connection that warrants treating well. But now in marriage, where you have vowed and committed yourself to a person to seek their good, and for that to be a place where faithlessness and treachery happens, this is the last place it should happen, and yet that is where it has gone here in Judah. All right, and so how has that shown up? Right? Well, first thing is that they are mistreating and divorcing their rightful wives. Right? Divorce is a big part of this passage, but there's a lot that talks about what happens really before divorce, the things that lead to divorce. A lot of times we think of divorce as the only thing that, that breaks a marriage. We think of the, like the legal divorce as the thing that breaks a marriage. But a lot of times that is not it. A lot of times divorce is the outcome of a covenant that's already been broken. For adultery, for instance, right? Divorce is given to us for cases of adultery. And that's one of the, the reasons that it is acceptable and a right thing for a Christian to pursue. That's because the marriage covenant has been broken already. The person seeking the divorce because they've been sinned against isn't breaking the marriage it was the sin within the marriage that broke the marriage. And we see that here in this passage, right? In verse 14, God talks about them acting treacherously and faithlessly within their marriages. This is before the divorce stuff even comes up. He brings that word back in, that traitorous word. So that is the way that you are relating to your wives, men of Judah, right? This, this woman that you have taken into your care, that you have vowed to love and to protect, and provide for, you are literally stabbing in her, her in the back. We don't know all the details about what this looks like, but it's egregious enough to warrant that word, right? That kind of connotation. And then in verse 16, we see it again, right? Where he says, you are hating or not loving your wives and then and divorcing them, right? So the divorce is following on the heels of stuff that is already shouldn't be happening in a marriage. 
right? And, and these are, so these are rightful marriages. These are good marriages that they were supposed to have. And instead of operating the way they should in them, they've become a place of abuse and exploitation. And ultimately, these men are abandoning the wedding vows that they made and leaving these women to their own devices. Which we should note, in that culture, this is painful anytime. And I don't, I'm, not, I'm never going to undermine that, right? But this was particularly devastating in the culture back then. There were a lot less avenues for women to provide for themselves and to care for themselves, right? To be divorced and to be put outside of that relationship put a woman in a very physically dangerous place. Uh, this, was a, a very, this was a very devastating thing, which we're going to see in some other ways in the passage, right? When, when God talks about the altar being covered with tears, he's not talking about the men bringing their sacrifices. He's talking about the tears he sees because of the pain they've caused in the way that they're relating to their wives. So that's the first thing that's going on. They are operating within their marriages in the complete opposite way that they should. They are exploiting, mistreating their wives and then abandoning them through divorce. But that's not the only thing that's going on, right? They're, they are also marrying improperly. Marrying improperly outside of faith in the true God. Right? And these things are related. We can see from other passages that a lot of times this divorce that they were pursuing with their rightful wives was explicitly for the purpose of going and marrying foreign wives. And foreign, not in the sense of another ethnicity, nationality, that is not the key point. The key point is they are foreign in the sense that they worship foreign gods. It's their idolatry that is prohibited, not this has nothing to do with nationality. It has everything to do with worship. If we look back to Deuteronomy 7.3, this has been prohibited from Israel since the time they were formed as a nation. There we read, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your sons to their daughters, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So it's very clear about what this whole thing is about. Right? It is about the reality. Marriage is such a close, intimate relationship that you will be shaped by the other person. It's designed that way. That's what it's meant to do that. Right? So the concern and reason for God's prohibition from this beginning is, is for their protection. It's to guard and preserve the true faith and to protect his people from wandering into idolatry, which would lead them in turn to judgment. Right? They're... they're, they're prospering and their flourishing depends on them being faithful to God. That's what the Mosaic Covenant was about. If you are faithful, you will be blessed. If not, you will be cursed. And if you do this, you will be unfaithful and you will bring these curses upon you. This is a gracious, this law, this command is not a restrictive thing. It's a protective thing, which is a key thing we always have to remember about God's law. We don't always understand them. They're not always what we would design, but they're not arbitrary. They are not meant to make your life harder and more difficult. They are always for your good and always for your protection and always for your safety, whether you understand it or not. God knows that in our sin, our flesh, we are, as John Calvin once put it, we are idol factories, right? We naturally gravitate towards idolatry. We do not naturally worship the rightful God. We naturally worship everything else. We naturally worship, but it goes into all the wrong places. And so when you add to our own flesh and the own sinful longings of our heart and you add this massive influence into a marriage where idolatry is explicitly being brought in, idolatry is going to follow. 
It's going to happen. This is an acknowledgement of just the true state of our hearts and what we will do and what we are prone to. So that's another way that they are breaking faith. They are being faithless. They are breaking their covenant with God by this blatant disobedience. And lastly, and this is almost kind of like the, the frosting on top of the whole thing, right? The little cherry. Is that all the while they're doing this, like treating, treating God's daughters horribly, blatantly spitting in his face and disobeying him, the whole time they're going to the temple and they're offering their sacrifices and they are worshiping their little hearts out. They're doing all the religious exercises just the way they should. Right? They had their quiet and they had all that stuff in a row. And God says he utterly despises it. He utterly despises it. Right? They are, they are willing to do these certain little parts of God's law, but in doing so, they do it to kind of make up for or justify them violating these much more deeply rooted aspects of God's law. Right? This is not unlike the situation that Jesus brought up with the Pharisees all the time, right? They were great at this by the book, keeping these little nuanced details, a lot of which they made up around God's law. But their hearts were utterly cold towards other people. They burdened people. They weighed people down. There was no love in any of it. And, And so Jesus is so harsh with them all the time to try to get them to see, you think you're great because you do, you check all these little spiritual boxes. But the very heart of what you were called to do is to love God and from that love to love your neighbor. And you do none of that. That marks nothing that you do. You are lost in deception when it comes to understanding what you are really doing. And you can see it when when Malachi tells them that their offerings aren't accepted. They're like, well, well, why aren't they? Why aren't they? I'm doing it. They're, They're kind of stunned. They shouldn't be stunned. This should be obvious. And there's literally dozens of passages throughout the Old Testament and into the New that Jesus quotes that talk about why are you bringing me sacrifices when you are abusing people, when you are mistreating people, when you are not just basically treating people as human beings and you think I'm going to be pleased with your sacrifices. What you have violated and make light of is so much more serious than you checking these little boxes. He doesn't take pleasure in sacrifice when there's this kind of hatred and love going on, and, and lack of love going on. So that's the basic situation, right? That's what's going on here in Judah. And so now I want to talk, kind of try to go a little bit of a layer deeper, right? In terms of, okay, why, why does this happen? Why has marriage and, and relationship in Judah degraded to this point? Because right? I think this is important for us to understand, because cultural things may be very different, but we are not different. Than, than them, and we are prone to the same exact things. And so what we need to understand is that our design, what God made us for, he made us to be outward facing. Outward facing. What I mean by that is that we were meant to be focused upward towards God and outward towards our neighbor. Like, it's a reflection of that command, right? That God calls us to love the Lord our God with all our minds, soul, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves. Both of those commands are outward facing, right? They are about giving ourselves to to the Lord and to one another. That's what we were designed for. That is what is actually good for us. Self-obsession is not good for us. What is good for us is to be outward-oriented towards God and towards others. But sin fundamentally changed this, 
right? Not what is good, but what we do. It turned our orientation in on ourselves to where our natural focus is not upwards towards God and outwards towards each other, but it's inwards on ourselves. Augustine's probably the first one who talked about it this way, but Luther picked it up and talked about it a lot. He said that in sin, we are, fancy Latin word is incurvitas in se. It just means we are curved in on ourselves. Picture like a, a strange, like distorted painting where somebody's neck is stretched out awkwardly long and curved forward to where their natural disposition of the head is looking straight at their abdomen. That's the picture, right? And that's what they were trying to draw out. The, the, the nature of our sinfulness, the nature of our sinful hearts is that where we were designed and what is good for us is to look to God, to depend on God, to look to our neighbor, to give of ourselves for our neighbor. Now what we naturally do is we obsess over ourselves. We see ourselves as the center of everything. Everything revolves around us. We spend ourselves trying to make ourselves okay. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, Scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. We are naturally in our flesh completely, totally to the core selfish. Everything, everything we relate to, everything we think about is all in relation to us. And this is not good, and it is not healthy. But it is our new state as sinners. And it stands in radical contrast to what God has called us to do and what he says is good for us, which is not to be focused on ourselves, but to be focused up and out towards God and as our neighbor. And this contrast, I think, really blazes forth from this passage. Because you can see exactly what has happened here with marriage. What we see here is a picture, we see a description of marriage turned in on itself. Of marriage from this sinful orientation. Where you are the center and everything is about you. And we see it in, in several distortions that are going on with the men of Judah who are being confronted here. First of all, we see this rejection of God's authority. Love for God is, is more than just obedience, but is certainly not less than obedience. Scripture is clear about that. And Judah has completely rejected this. They very clearly knew what they were called to. They were meant to be faithful in their marriages, to not divorce, and not to marry women outside of the faith. And they went completely in the face of that, boldly, openly. Right? They completely rejected God's authority. They stopped looking to him for guidance on what is good and what is right, and they became a law unto themselves. It's almost like a sense in which they're almost trying to like beat the system, right? And they see God's law as this, this system you have to operate in, but you try to find the corners to cut to make it work the best for you, right? We, have you ever found something like that? Have you ever found a loophole in something where you make something work really good for you and it's really satisfying? I, I love that, right? You learn how to game the game. That's kind of what they're doing with God's law, right? They're treating it as this, okay, this is this, this kind of prison that I have to live in, I have to operate in, and so let me find how I can navigate it. So maybe I can do marriage all this way, but I'll come give my sacrifices, and then I'll be good, and I can do what I want to. But that is, that is so wrong, right? And this is too often how we too think about the law of God. We think about the law of God as something we have to 
overcome and dodge and skirt to get what we really want. And that is a complete misrepresentation and misunderstanding of God's law. God's law is good. He designed this universe and he designed you. He knows what is good for you more than you know yourself. And when he calls you to things or away from things, he is not doing it to be hard on you, not doing it to make your life more difficult. He is doing it for your good and for your protection. And so this question, a lot of times, when we come down to whether we are going to obey or disobey, it's, not, it's a question of who do we trust? Do we trust the one who designed the universe, who created us, who loved us, who gave us life for us? Do we trust that what he says is good for us is actually good? Or we decide what we have come up with in our own heads is actually good and better than what he has said. We do the same thing over and over and over again. Every time that we sin, we do the same thing. It's the same operation in place. So they reject God's authority. They reject his law, but they also reject his priorities, right? They reject essentially his design for marriage. They reject completely what marriage is actually supposed to be. Now, an essential part of understanding God's design for marriage comes from this passage. He says, what was God seeking? Godly offspring, right? So he's saying that when you marry outside the faith, not only are you led away from the faith, but now the kids you have, you're going to lead them away from the faith. You're not going to raise them in the nurturing and admonition of the Lord. You're going to raise them up to something else, right? So this is a key understanding. This isn't just about kids, right? Marriage, one of the goals of godly marriage is to preserve the faith. Right? And so you marry rightly so that you are pressed by your spouse towards trust and dependence on God and so that you press them towards trust and dependence on God. So that when you are weak and you have trouble believing that he is actually good and he is who he says, is, you are not led astray in that, but you are buoyed up and encouraged through that valley and you do the same for them. It's meant to be a mutual support as we walk this life of faith. And it cannot be that when you are worshiping two different gods, right? The minute doubt creeps in, that is going to be fed and run in, and you're going to be pushed the other way. So this undermines the faith. Obviously, that's going to affect the raising of kids, right? But it also rejects the fact that marriage, another way that it preserves the faith is what it pictures, right? This we get better from the New Testament, especially Ephesians 5, Right? The new covenant family of God is, not, is a family born of faith, not of blood. Right? That doesn't mean raising godly children is obsolete. It's absolutely important. Raising kids in a godly home where they are in church under the means of grace and where they have the gospel promoted to them every day by their family is absolutely, is so utterly important. It's a greenhouse that God uses to bring kids to faith. It is the best possible place for a kid to be to come to faith. But there's another dynamic to this in the fact that Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that marriage itself is designed to picture the gospel. It's not just what we do for kids within marriage or how we relate to each other. It's the thing itself is meant to picture the very way that God loves and relates to his people. This is not an accident. Paul wasn't looking and saying, oh, look, marriage kind of looks like this. He's like, no, he says God designed marriage to do this. This is one of the fundamental purposes that it has. It's meant to show forth the relationship between Christ and his church. 
the relentless love, the sacrificial love that he has, the fact that he never leaves, he's never faithless, right? The love that the church in turn out of gratitude has in following Christ. All of these things are meant to be pictured in marriage. That's what a godly Christian marriage is designed to do. And what all of these things should show us, one of the basic understandings we have to have to understand marriage rightly is that marriage, first and foremost, is not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you or your spouse. First, first and foremost, is about God. He is the primary and most important actor in a marriage. The primary purpose of getting married isn't to have your needs met. It's not for anything like that. The primary purpose of marriage is so that you will glorify God more and better than you could on your own. That is the primary purpose of marriage. Again, this is not curved in on yourself, right? Marriage, this is marriage looking outwards, right, to God, and because this is the secondary thing, right? In order for marriage to do that, in order for marriage to glorify God, secondarily, marriage has to be about the other person and not you. If you go into marriage for what you are going to get out of it, your marriage will not be the kind of marriage God's talking about. That is fundamentally opposed to the picture that God is presenting. In Ephesians 5, when he talks about this relationship of Christ and the church and what represents marriage, he talks about Christ and his love for the church, that he lays his life down for her. Right? That is the picture, right? Of Jesus entering into this covenant, not because of what he is getting out of it, not because he needs to exploit his church to get something that he doesn't have. He's God. He needs nothing from us. He enters into it specifically to give of himself to the person he commits himself to. This, again, points us to this outward focus of marriage, right? You and your needs are not the primary goal of marriage. And if they are, you will never get them. You cannot get to it directly in that way. But a marriage lived for the glory of God and for the good of the other person will actually bring incredible, can bring incredible joy. It will be full of hardship, too, because this is a sinful, broken world. We're going to talk about that in a minute, right? But you guys see the difference here? And, and see the contrast between that and what is going on in Judah, right? Marriage that is outward facing, right? It's primarily about the glory of God, preserving, guarding the faith, and portraying properly who God is and how he relates to us to the world. And secondarily, laying down our lives for the other person. In Judah, it's the complete opposite. Marriage is completely and solely about what can I get out of this, right? And this is very much our culture's view of marriage, Marriage in our world nowadays is a mix of sentiment and pragmatism, right? If it feels good and it works, do it. Until it doesn't anymore, then leave. That is essentially what our world says about marriage. Sentiment plus pragmatism, until one goes away, then just get out of it, right? And that's exactly the kind of view that Judah had adopted of marriage. Remember the historical circumstances, right? Judah's recently back from exile. They are weak. They are poor. They are greatly diminished from what they once were. They are oppressed by the peoples around them. They have overlords that they have to pay taxes and tributes to. There is crazy inflation. It's, it's a pretty miserable situation, right? And in that culture, much more than in American culture, right, your status, your standing could be greatly changed by marriage. Right? 
American culture is so different. Like this idea of like, you know, you can be anything. You just work hard at it. And all these options are open to you. Most cultures and things, that hasn't been the case, right? And one of the, the primary ways, in, in, in the time this was written, your well-being, your standing was very much tied to your family. And how do you change that? You marry into another family that brings more to the table. So if you are marrying, if you're part of Judah and you're marrying within Judah, you're marrying somebody poor who doesn't bring much to the table because that's everybody right now, right? Nobody's enhancing your status if you're marrying within the faith as God calls you to. They don't bring anything to the table like that. But the nations around possibly do, right? So the motivation and the drive for these marriages there's probably some of it that was driven by, you know, just carnal desire and that sort of thing. But a large part of it was like, a large part of it was looking out for number one. Like, this is the one way I can make myself a little bit more secure. So I can stay with my, my, the wife of my youth that God gave me, worship the Lord together in poor, or I can leave her, and I can marry this neighboring woman who worships some other God, but her daddy has a lot of land, and I can kind of fall into that, and I can be much more secure than I am now. Right, so things are different for us now, but the underlying thing there is totally consistent with the kind of things we do now. We treat marriage as something, hey, this is going to fix stuff for me. Right? This is going to make life for me better. I am attaching myself to you, not for what I can give to you, but for what I can get out of you to help me. And when you go into marriage that way, and when you operate in your marriage that way, there's basically two people constantly trying to extract from the other person. Constantly failing, constantly disappointing, because what you're trying to get out of them, they can't provide. There's no other person you can marry who can make you safe, who can make sure you have enough. Nobody can bear up under that weight. You're looking for that person, to that person, for things you can only get from God. Right? That only, he's the only one who can make you safe. He's the only one who can infallibly provide for you. But now you're demanding it of another person and crushing them under that weight. And a lot of times, you're doing this, they're doing the same to you. So rather than this mutual relationship of looking to the needs of others, right, of, of what the men of Judah should have been doing in this hard circumstance, right, where everybody is poor and they're married to someone in the faith, is they should have been doing everything they could to take care of that wife God gave them, right? They should have taken the second job, done whatever they had to do, to make her as safe and allow her to flourish. But instead they did the exact opposite. They left her, abandoned her, to go seek their own needs. When you pursue, and again, this stuff bleeds over, this isn't just marriage, this bleeds over into regular relationships. We do this in friendships, we do this in relationships in the church too. If you look at the church around you guys, this is, we're family. If you treat people, if you come here, and you see the church as like, what can I extract from the people here, right? We're going to have a very bad church culture, right? We are going to have a culture where we are treacherous, where we stab each other in the back, where, where we should get good from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, we find evil, right? Instead, our disposition in our marriages and towards our brothers and sisters in Christ is supposed to be the disposition of Christ, to lay our lives down for them, to come here. Like, what can I give? How can I help? How can I make things better for them? Right? Marriage and relationship focused outward, extra nos, outside of yourself, instead of curved in on yourself. 
because Judah had fallen completely into this and we are not immune to it, even though the cultural circumstances may look quite different. And I think a great um, kind of cautionary tale of this would be Solomon. We just got done, uh, well, not just done, it's been a while now, but we went through the book of Ecclesiastes not long ago, which is written from Solomon's perspective. And one of the things we know about Solomon historically is that he violated this provision of God as well. He was, he had the greatest extent of kingdom. It was the, the peak of Israel's greatness was Solomon's kingdom. And at that peak, he decided in order to enhance that even more to marry a bunch of foreign wives. 300 wives actually is what he ended up with. It's a lot of wives. Um, and a lot of those were for political reasons, right? To enhance the kingdom. This was a commonplace thing. This is what you did back then. You married wives to secure alliances and to make sure this guy wouldn't attack you over here. You did that. And Solomon did. And what happened to him? He fell into idolatry, walked away from the Lord, and the kingdom split because of his idolatry and his faithlessness. So he went seeking out his own, his, his own glory, essentially, getting his needs met in, in marrying outside the faith, disobeying what God's provision for protection, and he brought judgment on himself and on his entire kingdom for walking outside of that. All right. Lastly, one other distortion that we see here is that we see a very diminished view of God and his righteousness, right? While they're doing all of this, they are continuing to do their religious performance at the temple that we talked about. And I want to read verses 13 and 14 for you again. There we read this. It says, second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. So she was your companion and your wife by covenant. So the question is here, right? Like they think they can do all this. They can do all this in their private lives. They can do whatever they want to and then they can come and worship God and be accepted. Right? They have relativized God's law. As long as I do this part, I can do whatever I want to over here. They have made God's standard for holiness something less than it would be so that they can do what they want to. Right? And God outright rejects that. <laughs> that is, we never get the option of doing that. We never get the option of picking and choosing what God has called us to do. And because we do one part of it, it justifies not doing the other. And God will be fine with that. That's not how it works. And this passage makes it incredibly clear in a very um, poignant way when it talks about the altar here. When you first read it, it sounds like maybe this is the men of Judah coming with weeping and tears and, and, and everything like that. But it's a little bit more clear in the Hebrew. Um, the translations do the best they can. The Hebrew in this passage is really, really hard to translate. Um, but what it's actually talking about is they're coming to worship and they're offering, but instead of seeing the blood on the offer and, and having this sweet sacrifice that comes up to the Lord, when he looks down, what he sees is the weeping and the groaning and the tears of their victims, of the people that they have betrayed. Right? So they're here just doing their, their normal thing, thinking they're on good terms, but what God sees, right, is all this sin and injustice that they have simply overlooked and they pretend like it's just fine. All right, so this is a warning for us for one thing. 
we do not get to dismiss, we do not get to decide and pick and choose what is right and wrong. But secondly, and I think this is so important because I know in a room this big, I know we have had people who have been mistreated in marriages. Um, that is absolutely certain in a room this big. Right? But it's important that you see here what God sees. Right? There's a big focus here on who has done wrong, but, but don't miss God's heart for those who have been sinned against. Because it comes through incredibly clear here. These guys seem to have won. Right? They're doing much better. They, they, they won. They got what they wanted. Right? They got their new wife, their better position. They're just moving on with life. These women who were divorced have been crushed. They're devastated. They were close to destitute before, and now they are. And when these men go to the temple, what does God see? He sees that sorrow. He sees that weeping. It goes on to talk about how this is what God sees because he is a witness. They made these vows and God was a witness. That is a very, that means something different than it means when we have witnesses at our weddings, right? We always have witnesses to, to validate. Like to, that's a key part of having the wedding ceremony that makes it a valid wedding. In covenantal language, right? Being a witness meant something more, especially if the witness was a God. It meant not only that they were looking on and seeing it, but they had the right and the obligation to enforce it, right? It'd be like if the, you know, the witnesses at your wedding were then to police you and kind of keep you in line in it. And if you ever got out of line, they went and got you back in line, right? It's a much heavier, weightier thing. And so God is saying, hey, what has happened it may look like what they've gotten, what they've wanted in the moment, but God sees and he knows, right? And they will give an account. But not just that, he sees and he knows the pain and the hurt that you've suffered under, right? If you've suffered under abuse, if you have suffered under being abandoned, if you have suffered wrongly in your marriage, God knows and he sees and he cares and he will not forget. He has not ceased to care for you and he will not cease to care for you. And that is so, so important for you to know. Because a lot of times in these situations, um, the victim can be made to feel guilty, right? If they had only done better, if they'd only done a little more, been a little different, then they could have held the thing together. Then maybe this person wouldn't have treated them that way. There's no part of your sin or failure, you know, any part of your weakness that justifies the sin of another person. Our sin is never justified by the sin of another person. So if you have been in a marriage like that, if you have been divorced because someone has left you, um, I just want you to know that you do not carry some scarlet letter with you, right? You do not bear the guilt of another person's sin. You are loved and you are cared for by the Lord even though your circumstances are hard. He sees your pain and he sees your tears and he has not forgotten you. Um, and the church is not a place that is going to condemn you or kick you out, that does not put you into a lower circle of our membership. We are here to love you and care for you and to be the Lord's hands and feet to walk with you through that. I can't speak to that much more without knowing specific circumstances. I know all you guys have walked through different things, but you need to know that on a base level, that God sees, he knows, and he cares, and he has not forgotten So at this point, we've kind of got two ways we can go, right? I can kind of go through and give you 87 rules to, you know, do your marriage better and do your marriage right. 
could go that way. Um, that wouldn't do us much good, though, to be honest. The men of Judah knew what they were supposed to do. They had that clear as crystal. It was in black and white or chisels on stone, you know, going back historically. Like, they knew what they were supposed to do, and they would not do it. Right? There's a deeper problem than just knowing what we should do, knowing that we should give ourselves for others. We have to get to the root the, the root thing that turns us in on ourselves and causes us and leads us to think that treating other people that way would be an acceptable thing. And so we have to start with our view of God himself. Because that's what ultimately is at the root of what happened with Judah. They forgot who God was. They forgot who he was towards them. And all of this stuff with marriage is downstream of that. Right? The in, opening passage in Malachi is them being confronted about the fact that they don't believe God loves them. They have decided, based on what's going on there, their life is too hard, their circumstances are too difficult, it must mean God does not love them. And they're confronted and, and told, like, no, that is not true. You don't interpret God through the lens of your circumstances. You interpret your circumstances by who God says he is. Right? So whatever this is, it is not a lack of God's love for you. But that's where they are. They don't trust him to take care of them. They don't trust him to keep his promises. So when you're at that point, right, if you have a God who is not, who is not God, who's not sovereign, who doesn't control everything, and then on top of that, you may have a God who's powerful, but if you don't know he's for you, where are you left with? You are left with what you can provide for yourself, what you can do for yourself with your own two hands. You are dependent on yourself. And you have to your security, your peace, your well-being depends on what you can make out of these two hands with the circumstances you have. And what we see here is marriage and relationship done by people who are desperate, who think everything rests on them, and that their good is determined on what they can wring out of this life for themselves by, as they look out for number one. Right? And we will do the exact same thing if we forget the things that they forgot, right? How you think about God is upstream of everything else that you do. Who you understand him to be, how you understand him to relate to you shapes absolutely everything, including your marriage, how you raise kids, how you go to work, everything. Because you're either doing it, resting and trusting in his provision, his care for you, or you're doing it to try to make yourself okay. One or the other. When we relate to a spouse or another person from this place of, of lack, right? From a place of God is not for me, he is not good to me, he does not have good purposes for me, I have to take care of myself. When we relate to another person where, where our well-being depends on us, then there's only a few ways we can relate to people. We have to self-protect. We have to exploit other people and get out of them what we need. We are desperate. It is this desperation, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. I have to get everything I can out of people because I am not okay. I don't have enough. And what if it's not enough? And so it's a constant clawing and scraping to get everything you can out of other people. Because the problem is that other people are Creatures, and they can't do for you what a creator can, even if they wanted to. Even if they loved you perfectly and gave of themselves perfectly for you, it would not be enough because they cannot do for you what God can do for you. Other people 
They're just creatures. They're limited. The other fact is that they're sinners. They are going to seek their own good at times. They are going to fail. They will not be perfect ever. They are going to fail you and they are going to hurt you. And if you cannot be in a relationship where you will not be hurt, you cannot be in a relationship in this world. It's just part of being in a relationship with sinners. So marriage and relationship done on these kinds of conditions, right? That, that I have to get everything I need out of you and you must never fail me. It's dead on arrival. It is not going to work. Just start the timer. It's going to end. It can't survive. It can't make it. And all this comes back to our understanding of God. Understanding him rightly is the foundation to a right marriage, to a marriage that is different than the one that we've read about here. Those things, those things we want to get out of people are things we have to find in God and in him alone. And when we understand him rightly, right, we realize that anything we actually truly need has already been provided in him. This is not a conditional proposition. It, we have the proof and the evidence that this is true. That God does do this. He does care for you. He does give you all that you need. We do not have a God that is distant and cold. We do not have a God who is impotent. We do not have a God who is indifferent from you. We have a God who is all-powerful, who is intimately concerned with everything that goes on here. Not a hair moves apart from his will and his ordination. And that same God is for you. He is for you if you are in Christ. And the proof is Christ, right? That Christ came and took on flesh and went to the cross and rose from the dead. Not to add anything to himself, but solely for your good. There was nothing that he did not have before that he has somehow added to himself by doing that work. It was for you. If you ever doubt, any of your circumstances make you doubt, oh, maybe God doesn't love me. The cross stands as witness that that is not true and it cannot be true. The God who does that loves you. Full stop. And he does so even when we are faithless. This is not a conditional kind of love. There's all kinds of beautiful pictures of this in scripture but, scripture, but one of the most beautiful is Hosea. Hosea is this prophet, right? And he's a little different than Malachi. Malachi comes and he just speaks God's words. Hosea is one of these prophets who basically gets to play out God's word with his own life. And he is called to marry essentially the most unqualified woman you can possibly imagine. The last person in Israel anybody would marry because of the way she lives her life. And he does, and he has kids with her. And he has to name his kids certain things that talk about the condition of God's people. And she goes back to her old life, repeatedly. And what does God have Hosea do? He's perfectly justified in leaving her, in going and doing something else. But God has Hosea go and bring her back. Go and bring her back. Right? And it is meant to be a picture of God's love for his faithless people. Because we are like that, church. Every day, we go our own way. We 
deny him in all kinds of practical, functional ways. But his love for us is not conditioned on our performance. It is conditioned by his character. It's who he is that drives that love. So he will not fail. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. And he always will be. And again, this is found in its pinnacle. What what Hosea was just a mere picture of in Jesus himself, who came and, and loved people and died for people while they hated him and were sinners and brought them to life, reconciled them to God at the cost of his own life, not because of anything appealing in them, not because they gave anything to him, but because he is love. He laid down his life for our sake so that we would have all good things. He always keeps his covenant. He always keeps his promises. That grounding, that framework, that means, Christian, that you are rich. You are rich. You are united to Christ. You are a co-heir with him. All that is his is yours now. So you don't have to relate to other people as somebody who's desperate clawing to get out of them something that will make you feel just a little bit better, make you a little bit safer. You are perfectly safe. Your eternity is secure in a place where there will be nothing bad left, no disappointments left. All of that is yours. And that is the thing. That is what allows marriage to be different. That is what marriage allows marriage to look anything like what it should. This is what allows you to relate to another person, not for what you can get out of them, but for what you can give to them. Because you are not poor, Christian. You are rich. You love. You forgive. You die to yourself out of the abundance of riches that you have in him, not out of some faux-imagined poverty that is no longer yours. That's why this is at the heart of it, church. You can't talk about good marriage and good relationships without understanding who you are in Christ and what he has done with it and how he relates to you. Which brings us back to, I just want to talk about briefly our own failings, right? Because we may not have divorced, we may not have taken things as far as the men of Judah have, but when I think about um, my own wedding vows, uh, I've failed them extensively. Right? I have not loved my wife nearly the way that I um, committed myself to before God. Um, daily, I fail to do what I meant to do, what I want to do. Uh, and every single one of us does to one degree or another all the time. And so the answer is, what do we do with those failings? Right? What do I do now as I understand what I have in Christ and I look at the way I relate to my wife, the way that I look to other people, and it falls so short of that. What do I do now? The answer is not to do like Judah, not to treat it lightly, not to ignore the hurt I cause my wife, the hurt I cause other people, the times I use other people for my good. But one of the ways that our marriages and our relationships continue to bear witness with the gospel is by the way we handle those failings, right? When I fail my wife, when I do not live up to what I promised, when I exploit other people around me and use them for what I want out of them, my answer is not to pretend like that doesn't happen, right? The, the right way to do that, right, in light of what we have in Christ is to own that. 
I know I am a sinner. My wife deserves so much better from me than she gets. Each of you deserve better from me than you get. And that will be the case for every person I interact with. I fail. I exploit people. I do not love them. I do not die to myself for them the way that I should. And you don't either. Right? But the way Christians handle that is we handle it in a way that still bears witness to the gospel. Because the gospel is not that God found a perfect people that he could love. The gospel is that God went and found broken, wretched sinners, and his love creates in them that's that, that which he loves. He didn't find it. He creates it in them. So when I see that weakness and that failure in me, I don't pretend like it's okay. I don't pretend like it's all right. I run to the throne of grace and mercy. I remember how much I've been given. I remember what I have in Christ and that despite my failure, there is no condemnation left for me. And that, that fuels me to, to give as much of myself as I can again. It will still be halting. It will still be flawed and broken. Right? But even in doing that, as my wife and I sin against each other and we constantly have to ask each other for forgiveness and everything, we are still in this broken way bearing witness to the gospel of Christ. God can be glorified in that marriage because we are treating sin like sin and we are running to the right place with it. So if you're convicted this morning about the way that you've lived in your marriage, about the way you've treated your neighbors, um, that is a good thing. And that is not something you need to shirk. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, helping you to see and understand that you are still a sinner. But don't see that apart from the grace and mercy in Christ. There is more grace in him than there is sin in you. Right? And if you have trusted in him, that is covered. It is taken care of. You don't have to fear it anymore. Run to him for mercy and grace. And then give everything you've got to love and care and give of yourself for other people. Out of that riches you find at the throne. As we say things in our wedding vows like in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. We make these promises in, in these wedding vows. Our wedding vows very much reflect the ideal, the good picture of marriage we're painting. Right? When I, in my wedding vows, there is nothing that says, I will do this for you, Susan, as long as you do this thing. Or until you do this. There's nothing like that in there. It is all, I will do this for you in all these circumstances, right? Not when just things are going well, not just when you are adding and improving my life, but when things are bad, when things are worse than we ever thought they would be, when we are destitute, right? We make those kinds of vows because they are a reflection of what marriage is designed to be. It is not what's going on in Judah. It is what we are free to by the love of Christ. Our marriages, our relationships beyond marriage are designed to glorify him, to honor God to point people to the truth about who he is and what he has done for us. And part of that is we lay our lives down for the other person. Always. That is always what is good for us to do. We seek their good at our cost because we have been made rich in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you this morning and for your word. Um, 
I just want to pray specifically for a couple of groups of people here that I know we would have in our midst. I pray for those who are um, single, who are not married yet. I know when there are times when we focus on marriage, it can bring up um, feelings of just what you want, um, what you long for, and and what you haven't had yet. And I just pray that um, for those of our body who are in that state, I just pray that they would know that the state you have them in is for their good, that you love them, that you are not withholding something good from them, that you have them uh, in their singleness right now, that you have not withheld from them something that they have given everybody else. If there was some place better for them to be right now, they would be in it. Uh, That you would let them trust in the kindness and and mercy of God and the way that you're working in their lives. I pray that they would know fully and deeply that they are 100% full-class citizens in the body of Christ, that they are essential and valuable. We love them and we need them. Um, that they would not feel like they're in some kind of holding pattern until they step fully into what you have for them, Lord. Um, I just pray for them, that you'd care for them. Lord, for those who um, have been through divorce, who have been through a great deal of pain and suffering in their marriages, Lord, I just pray for your care and love for them. Lord, that they would not mistake their suffering. Um, The suffering is a result of sin and the fall. It is not a result of your lack of care for them and your lack of love for them. I pray that you would help them to trust that even when circumstances scream otherwise. I pray that they would know um, that your church is here to help them, to care for them, to comfort them, not to push them to the outskirts or anything like that. So Lord, I pray that you would free them to be able to walk openly and to have others help carry those burdens. Lord, for those who might be all too well aware of their own failures right now in their marriages and in their relationships. I pray that they would not feel the weight of the law without the chaser of the mercy and grace that is in Christ. Uh, Lord, let them feel it enough that it would drive them to you for grace and mercy, enough that it would not let them think that they can just reform, that they can just be better, that they'll just fix a few things, but that it would drive them full-fledged into the arms of Jesus and that you would strengthen them and enrich them and, and, and fix the broken things that lead them to exploit rather than to care for those that you have entrusted to them. Father, I pray for us as a church that we, in all our relationships, starting with our marriages and then down to the ways that we relate to one another, that we would be a church that is marked by Christ-like love and care for one another, that we would not be a church that victimizes and uses but each other, but that as Paul talks about in Romans, that we would outdo one another in showing honor, that we would be tripping over ourselves to to lay down our lives and to give of ourselves for one another because that bears witness to how we've been loved. We love because we have first been loved. We forgive because we have first been forgiven. And so the way we relate to one another in this adorns the gospel that we proclaim. And Lord, we're a young church in a lot of ways. We are new in our relationships with one another. There is going to be ways that we sin against each other. There are going to be ways that we fail each other uh, that are going to hurt, and we are going to have to walk through hard things. And I pray even now that you would be strengthening us in the riches of your gospel and the riches of what we have in Christ so that we will weather those things, and not just weather them, but that we would bear witness to who you are and how you care for your people in the way that we do. We thank you, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.